Hey, Boneheads, this is Joe Lewis. Welcome to a great interview with, with a wonderful director, Gary Sherman. And Gary Sherman directed Poltergeist 3, Dead and Buried, Deathline. He gave us uh, one of my just movies that just has a visceral effect on me, Vice Squad. This is a little weird because the other two Boneheads are still in rehab. We did a long interview. It's over two, right at two hours. So we're going to split it up into two episodes. This is the first episode. And then next week, you'll get the second episode. So like I said, this is just with me, the other two boneheads rehab, but don't worry. We will eventually get them cured off the turkey. We go from the counterculture 60s to the Democratic Convention up into Donald Pleasance giving him crap. Wonderful storyteller. I just can't thank Gary Sherman enough. So thanks, Gary. This is part one. Part two will be out next week. Enjoy. When we do these things, we always try to go, whether we've had Mick Garris on the show, I can just go down a list. But when I do it, I yeah. try my best to get questions that people don't normally get from other folks but i can't pass up something that i know you have to talk about all the time because if there's a living legend someone's worked with and you're a living legend yourself i mean from dead and buried from poltergeist three from Deathline, you know but you worked with donald pleasance in your first I movie i did and that was really an amazing experience and it was you know at a time uh, in 1972, Donald was just considered the actor's actor, right? And he he was just uh, you know he had he was appearing on Broadway at the time in Man in the Glass Booth. Uh huh. Um, actually, he was just finishing his run, and he had just won a Tony for it. And um, I mean, Donald was just amazing. And um, we. Carrie, Carrie Jones and I wrote the script. When we were writing the script, we had Donald in mind all the time. And somebody had told me that, that Donald wanted to do a comedy. And, uh, and I, I found out it was true. He was really wanted to do a comedy. And so we, we wrote that part, especially for Donald and for you know, his brand of humor. And the uh, nose picking when he walks into the office, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, with the handkerchief and, and, the, and then yeah. the darts. And, but I mean, the whole character and, and we, we wrote a background for the character. And, and that's what we sent off to his agent. We sent just his, his lines, his pages. <laughs> um, and, and, the, uh, and, and a character sketch of 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 inspector cahoon and he read it and he loved it and, and then you know we talked about the rest i i then i flew to new york from london and um uh met with donald we we you know got together and i you know told him i said you know it's it's a told him what it was and we talked about the politics of the, of the, of the film because yeah. to me that was the most important thing was the fact that it was you know a social commentary and he just said i'm in and uh hear about the rest of it just social commentary and his background of, of his right but i mean the, the 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 horror part is the social commentary right. of the film and um he just loved it and said i'm in i'm in so, so you you want to talk about the social commentary a little bit? I mean, we have these people, they're they're living in basically the tunnels, right? Underneath right. well, yeah. the social commentary was a commentary on, on uh, British classism. Yes. And and uh you know, I I I got to look to London and um you know, my mother was British and I was kind of I left because of the convention in Chicago. Is that the uh, reason you yeah. left? Because that's actually my next question, because you're from Chicago. And I was trying to figure out, according to what I can find, you're from Chicago, and then you end up in London. And it, it was over the Democratic convention? Yep. I left right after the convention. I just didn't want to be in Chicago anymore. And my mother is British. Mm -hmm. So um, I family in london than i than i have in the states so or in england and yeah. um uh so anyways i just said you know i'm gonna go live where my mother came from 
and uh, so we 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 picked up and and moved to London and um, um, and I got a green card immediately because of the fact that my mother was British and I had so much family there they kind of helped me get settled in London yeah so um, but um, w- once I got to London you know I, I the the British really kept pointing a finger at uh, uh, at Americans, and you know about how racist we were, and which I agreed with that <laughs> that we are. But um, you know, it was like the British were, you know, don't throw stones if you live in a glass house. You know, absolutely. I mean, and I just, it really annoyed me. And I love the British and I, and I love the UK. And, um, but I just thought they needed a little uh, slap in the face about, about racism and, and classism because their history was filled with it. And I mean, their, their colonization and you know the British empire and the way they treated the people that you know, as they expanded their empire, um, and uh, you know, any anybody that wasn't white was treated, mm-hmm. you know, like shit. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, you can say shit. You act and let you know you can say whatever you'd like. Okay. Um, and I just thought, you know, I want to say this, and I, I had written several scripts. Um, John John Demi was like my best friend when I got to England. He he also was an expat at that time living there. Now you're talking and, about Jonathan Demi, the director, correct? Yeah, Jonathan Demi. Balance yeah, of the Lambs sucks. for our for our audience out there, or the Corman alum for me. But yes, right. So, right. <laughs> but Jonathan uh, and I worked together. He was he was my producer. I was directing commercials and he was producing them, uh-huh. and. And when we decided, everybody kept saying, oh, do a feature, do a feature. So we kept, we sat down and wrote because everybody said, write, write something. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan and I had written a whole bunch of scripts together and they were very political and everybody, and they were kind of like student films, you know, they were just so mm-hmm. preachy. So, um, uh, Anyhow, um, well, so you're saying you're a little old, you're a little heavy handed because I mean you've been in activism about civil rights and you've been pretty active, right? I mean you weren't just on yeah, the yes, 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 I had, I I had, but I mean you know, anyways, nobody wanted to make the scripts we were writing, and and mm-hmm. finally we wrote one that that because we had a star attached to it who was Ray Davies from the Kinks, yeah, Ray wanted to make a movie, and so we wrote a movie with Ray. And uh, and it was all set up to go, and then Ray decided he he wasn't a movie star; <laughs> he was a rock and roll star. Well, he got convinced by his brother. I was about to say and, the only one. There's several others who decided they were both. Yeah, but his brother and the rest of the group were not. The Kinks were not happy with with Ray going off to do a movie, so he pulled out, and the movie never happened. And the studio that was going to make the movie said to me, "Why don't you write a horror film?" Yeah, and I thought to myself, ah, put put social commentary into a horror film, and you get it made. Yeah, because you're yeah. not the first one to do that. <laughs> no, no. It, it, I mean, it started with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you Absolutely. know. Yeah, and, and Bram Stoker's Dracula. I mean, they were they were all social commentary. They were, and. I mean, so it, it had been there forever. I mean, everybody, you know, the, you go back to Dickens and the way that he would slide social commentary into his stories. But, and and Poe, I mean, it, it, it has a long history of that. Right. And um, so anyways, um, I did, I, I did that and it got made. And that's how uh, <laughs> how I ended up as a British film director. <laughs> well, I mean, 
I I don't want to say luck. You were preparing yourself for the big jump from the, from the get go, but I I find it fascinating. So Donald Pleasance, you say, was easy to work with, and then if you Carpenter ended up loving him, John Carpenter. But John told stories about you know he would test him every day on the on the set. He wasn't. Oh, like, here. Donald tested me every day on the set, and but I mean he you know when he wasn't on camera, he was off getting tea for everyone. I'm. And and one day he he we were rapping and he said, Gary, I'm not on the call sheet tomorrow. I said, No, you've got a day off. And he says, But but he said, Bacon Bacon is is doing his phone call with me, so I have to be there for the other side of the phone call, because he was there when I did my side of the phone call. And. I said, are you, you really want to come in just to do the phone call? And he said, absolutely. I mean, that's the kind of person that Donald was. And he actually came in. He says, you know, I, I want to know. I'm not charging you for this. I'm just send a car to pick me up. And that's the only thing that it's going to cost you is the car to pick me up and take me home. That is an amazing story for people who don't understand. Most actors would not have been on that other side of that call. You know, they just no. Usually, it's the script supervisor, who, you know, or 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 the director or whoever that does uh, the the other side of a phone call. And um, Donald just absolutely insisted that he be there to give to the other actor. That's incredibly giving. Incredible. Oh. I've never. I have. It, I've very few times I've heard that story of interviewing folks because we do a lot of behind this. We love talking to production people, directors, writers, production managers, production designers, artists. And it's very few times I've heard that story. Yeah, he, he was amazing. He was just, uh, uh, I mean, he was so giving. But I mean, the first day, okay, I'm a 20 something, you know, yeah. I'm like 24, 25 years old. And that's young. That is young and, to be running a set. And I had never directed a movie. I directed some documentaries and I did a lot of commercials, but I had never directed a, a you know a dramatic feature film. And I walk on the set and there's Donald Pleasance and Norman Rossington. The, the, they had probably been in more pictures than I, as an audience, had even seen in my whole life. Right. You know? And and they're both sitting there with like the, like this, with their arms crossed, looking at me, which they had, you know, done on purpose. Mm -hmm. And they said, "Okay, boss, what do you want to do?" <laughs> and it was absolutely a challenge. And whatever we just uh we got into it we did it and um uh you wrote it was great i i i passed the test but donald is was such a practical joker it, 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 you know you've seen the movie so you know his desk was right in front of a fireplace mm -hmm. every time i mean every time donald would get up from the from the desk, he would he would make a noise like stomp his foot, you know, out of, off camera, so to say, and and go oh, like he'd hit his head on the mantle. <laughs> and every time he'd do it, I say, oh, Donald, are you okay? And he, and he said, yes, I'm an actor. <laughs> and he would do this every time, and and every time I he he was so convincing, I would react. So finally, I just got to the point one day where I was not going to react to mm -hmm. him bumping his head. And or I had gotten to the point. And, and uh, so one day he gets up and he bumps his head and he grabs his head with both hands. And he goes, oh, God, I really did it. This. And I'm saying, I'm not falling for it, Donald. And he go, oh, and suddenly blood starts dripping down his forehead. <laughs> and I goes, oh, my God, you really did it. And he said, no, I didn't. I'm an actor. <laughs> and he had done this with the makeup guy. And he had a blood bag in his hand. <laughs> and he just laughed so hard. 
<laughs> but I mean, you know, that, that was the end of it. After that, he didn't do it anymore. But <clears throat> at 24, how was it handling those British crews that you've hear that you've heard about all these years who could be testy or who who were Oh, my uh, crew was just the best. First of all, I'd been directing commercials there for a number of years. And you know, when you do commercials, you pay your crew a lot of money. Yeah. So I mean, I, I, Alex Thompson, um, I had worked with dozens of times. I mean, even though he was an Oscar, you know, nominated DP for yeah. features, he would do commercials. And I, you know, I paid him per day what he would get per week on a on a feature film. Mm -hmm. um at doing commercials because that's you know what happens and so anyways i mean i had worked with alex I, I can't i can't even name alex and i had traveled to locations all over the world together and and um we had become really good friends he and diana his wife and and his little daughter his little daughter was just a couple of years older than my daughter and they were friends and you know so it was like family Alex and I were like family already. And um, so, and I told them, I said, you know, you, you want to come do a feature with me and we're going to do it really low budget. And and we all decided how, how, how much time we could afford to take off of commercials to, to do this movie. And, um, and that's what we did. And Alex put a camera crew together that was absolutely fantastic. And I knew most of those people from commercials too. And Joe and Tony Teeger, who were the prop masters uh, on, had just finished Barry Lyndon with- um, Kubrick? But with Kubrick, yeah. And, but, um, uh, but, you know, they had done commercials with me too. And Joe and I actually had become really good friends. Um, he was married to an American woman and um, who, who I had known. And uh, uh, so anyways, you know, like, and then everything else just fell into place. The production designer, Dennis Gordon, or I had met actually in, in, in France. Um, and uh, it, it just, the whole crew, the whole crew was great. I mean, it was great. And my first AD was Lewis Mora Farrell, who Lewis um, had been my AD on commercials for, for several years already. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it was funny because, you know, everybody fought me using Lewis because, you know, he was a commercials first AD. But, you know, Paul Mislansky, who was, you know, our line producer on, on the show, uh -huh. um, kind of tested Lewis and said, okay. And he says, and I'll be there anyway. So, um, and Lewis did a great job and, and kept a real family feeling on the show because it was a tough show to shoot. We were actually shooting in abandoned tunnels. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we had people whose job was just to keep the real rats away. Right. I mean, there were rats everywhere and everything stank. And it was, uh, we had to spray down everything with disinfectants every morning when we, you know, before we started shooting. And um, it was uh, not a pleasant, <laughs> not a pleasant shoot. The only thing that was pleasant was Donald. <laughs> well, he, he went on for fame for Police Academy, correct? Yes, he did. Paul was so funny. Paul had mainly, you know, produced, had produced a lot of movies and, and all different shapes and sizes. He had done the Hammer films, mm -hmm. and, you know. Right. Uh, and um, he had just, <clears throat> when I met Paul, I met Paul through uh, Jonathan. Jonathan knew Paul from New York. Yeah. Jonathan Demi. Right. And um, it, when we finished writing the script, when Carrie and I finished writing the script and Jonathan read the script, um, he just said, oh, I got people I want to send this to. And I said, who's that? And he said, I'm going to send it to Paul Maslansky, who's coming to London because he just finished a film for Jay Cantor and Alan Ladd Jr. that he did in Israel. And um, uh, so anyways, the, 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 Paul was the first 
outsider to read Deathline. Huh. And he just loved it. And he called me and he says, can I give this to Jay and Laddie? And I said, well, I was going to give it to John Daly because that's who asked me to write it in the first place. He said, no, let me give it to Jay and Laddie. Mm-hmm. So I said, fine. And the next thing I got a call from Jay Cantor and, um, uh, and, and Jonathan negotiated the deal because, I mean, he was my producer at the time and he was going to produce the movie. Um, so he went in and sold me as the director to, uh, to, to Jay Cantor and Alan Ladd Jr. And, um, he, <laughs> and he was going to produce with Ms. Lansky. Then Jonathan went off with Joe Viola, who was a, a director that worked with our company. Uh-huh. And they went off to shoot something in Los Angeles. And that's when Jonathan met Roger Corman. For everybody, yeah. And um, uh, and Corman just was blown away by Jonathan, and uh, which was easy to do because Jonathan was an amazing, amazing human being. Um, and Corman said, come to work for me. And Jonathan calls me from California and says, Roger Corman just asked, offered me a job. And I said, take it. Are you kidding? <laughs> I, I said, are you kidding? I said, you know, it, what a what a break it could be for you. And um, and he said, well, what about Deathline? And I said, well, you know, Paul, you were going to produce it with Paul. So Paul will produce it without you. I don't think Paul really needs you. <laughs> and, and he said, Wow. He said, yeah. He said, Joe and I are both going to go to work for Corman. Joe's going to do and I'm going to produce and I'm going to direct and he's going to produce. So I said, go for it, man. You know, and um, boom, boom. the rest is history for Jonathan. That's a fantastic. And, go ahead. Yeah. And, and, and I and Paul and I did Deathline. Well, it's a fantastic story. Just for our audience, I mean, if if they're not familiar with Alan Ladd Jr. or Laddie, to most people who knew him, he he ran 20th Century Fox. He's the man that greenlit Star Wars and Alien. And and Jay Jay is was yeah. his his lifelong business partner. I mean, they've never done anything separately, you know. And and um, Jay has always been, you know, the backup for for Laddie and. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are no two people in the world closer than those two guys. They, you know, <laughs> yeah. they were there for the birth of each other's children. And they just, uh, they're, they're an amazing, they still are. They're still best friends. Jay, Jay will turn 95 this year. Oh. And Laddie is 85. And, and, uh, you know, they, Jay's unbelievable. Jay Jay is just Jay's like he's twenty five instead of ninety five. I I talk to Jay every week. Um, you really? You're still friends after all this time? Oh, I he's he's one of the people I love most in the whole world. He's just an amazing, amazing guy, and he's been my mentor for my whole career. And uh, I mean, we we could do an hour on Jay. Jay's Jay's career is. He was at one time the biggest agent in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. He was the, the biggest agent at MCA before they bought Universal. Yeah. Uh, and got broken up as an agency. But when they were an agency, they were the agency. I mean, what MCA was back in the beginnings of, 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 of MCA, they, they dwarf what CAA is today. I right. mean, it, it's just, uh, they ruled, MCA ruled um the, the world of show business stage screen radio and television yeah. and um uh and jay was one of the biggest agents there so he started when he was very young i'm curious uh and this is not necessarily oh bye-bye have a good time my, no my wife was walking by no i thought i was i, I was saying hi <laughs> I you might be living for her appointment so what i was going to this is getting a little off topic but i know you were so did you and jonathan basically was it music that you both loved because you were a session session musician correct yeah well i mean jonathan and i just you know got hooked up actually who introduced jonathan and i this is really unbelievable was robin hardy Robin Hardy, 
okay. to direct Wicker Man. Oh, I should have known that off the top of my head. I am so sorry. I give me credit for keeping up most of this, but I, yeah, Hardy slipped my mind. Well, when I first got to London, Robin owned a production company, and um, uh, and and when I got. Uh, they, I got a call from J. Walter Thompson, and and they, they knew that I was in England or in London, and uh, they they had a commercial they wanted me to direct, and they asked me if I was hooked up with a production company, and I said no. They said, well, we have a commitment from from this one production company, and we want you to do this commercial. So maybe you could do this commercial through this production company. And it was Robin's production company, and uh, um, and so, anyways, and Jonathan was working for Robin's production company. Oh, okay. So that's how Jonathan and I got hooked up, and we eventually left Robin and set up our own company. Uh, and everybody's heard the story. We had a third partner, and it was Michael Mann, and uh huh, uh, and it, it didn't work out too well. Um, are you saying I, he had too much personality or he was too too Michael Mann? I'm trying to think of a nice way to put it. Michael Mann is one of the most disgusting human beings I have ever met in my life. And um thank you. He, 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 he's a horrible human being. And yeah. um and, and almost anyone who's met him can confirm that. <laughs> but anyways, I, I, I've talked about Michael many times in many no, that's interviews okay. and I, 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 I wasn't actually trying to get there I, and I'll t if you want to after we're done I'll tell you a story about a friend of mine who interviewed him and a horrible nightmare that was sometime okay you probably already can guess where it went yeah yeah I, I can yeah all yeah. right so back to why was there such a break between that and your next movie which is dead and buried what what, what? AIP um yep. American the fact that, pictures yes the fact that deathline got sold behind our backs by our financier mm -hmm. uh to aip was the the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my whole life um it, it, the the day that we got the call from, well david niven jr was running cic at the time um, which was the, the co-distribution co company between Paramount and Universal for uh -huh. Europe. And Frank Yablons, who was president of Paramount, happened to be in town uh, in London. And David had seen Deathline in, 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 uh, in the, the director's cut, because um, David was a friend. Of, of Jay and Laddie's and, and of mine. And um, uh, and he wanted to see the movie. So he, he saw the movie. Well, he just loved it. Mm -hmm. And um, as, as an aside, I, <laughs> David is such a good friend. He, he, he does a cameo in my film, Lisa. Oh, really? <laughs> He's the guy that comes in to buy flowers in the flower shops and, and make a, and makes a pass at, at, at Cheryl Ladd. Uh -huh. um, but anyways, um, David said, told Frank about the movie, Frank Blondes, and, and uh, Frank said, I want to see it. So David screened it for Frank. Frank loved the movie. I mean, just went nuts over the movie called jay and laddie and just said stop showing the film to anybody paramount's buying this film worldwide except for the uk because rank already owned it for the uk and uh, he said i want it for the united states for south america north america europe every asia i want the movie and so jay picked up the phone and called the people in New York who had put up the money for the film and said, don't, don't do anything. We've sold the picture to Paramount for worldwide distribution. And um, uh, they said, too late. And Jay says, what do you mean too late? And they said, we sold it to AIP. 
Shade goes, what? <laughs> and and we have, we're on speakerphone. Laddie and I were in the room and all of us, our faces just dropped. I mean, what could be worse? Well, we, we made a serious movie yep. and they sold it to the company that does Beach Blanket Bingo. Yep. I, I mean, and... It, it, and they said it was too well it ended up that what they had done was sold it on a cross collateralization which was basically illegal they they had had other films at, at uh, aip that had lost money yeah and they were going to make up the money with this one so they basically gave this film to uh to aip and and samuel z arkoff yep who is the most tasteless human being <laughs> that, that has crossed his, I mean, he, he comes to London to, 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 for something else, but he, he called me and he wanted to meet me. And I, he's staying in the, in the, in the Royal suite at the, at the Savoy hotel. And uh, I mean, Sam made a lot of money selling crap. Yeah. But a uh, lot of people did. Um, and I go up to his suite, he opens the door and he's standing there in this silk dressing gown with a big S-Z-A embroidered You're on it. You're shitting me. He actually had a got, dressing gown with his initials on it? Yeah, I mean, huge. <laughs> I've never heard that story before. That was. <laughs> and he's got a cigar the size of a baseball bat that he's puffing away on. And he says, come on in there, you know, it's a big tough well a little tough guy like he was right out of central casting for every stereotype correct he was he was edward g robinson yep. <laughs> in little caesar you know i yep. mean and and he, so he starts telling me he says i don't know why you want to work with people like alan ladd and jay Cantor. they don't know one end of a camera from the other and he's going, you, you should work with companies like mine because we know how to make movies and da, da 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 And he just starts going on about Jay and Laddie, who, you know, I mean, as, as you already mentioned, these were the people that greenlit Star Wars, that greenlit Blade Runner. That, Alien. That, I mean, it's just the list. Yeah, Alien. It, 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 the turning point. Um, chariots of Fire. Yeah, I mean, it's just unbelievable the films that they've made. So um, successful that it basically ran him out of 20th Century Fox. I mean, Star Wars was such a hit that because they didn't have the sequel rights, right? I mean, it it ended kind of. Oh, I, I I had stories about that, but <laughs> oh, you do. It would be more. Oh, than yeah. Listen to them, but um. Anyways, I I stood up and I said, Sam, thank you very much. It was nice to meet you. I'm leaving. And I walked out. In the meantime, he then and his cohorts, I think there's somebody named Nicholson, I can't even remember his name. Um, they cut the shit out of Deathline. Yeah. And they 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 cut the tracking shot out. Yeah. They redubbed some of Donald's scenes because they didn't think that the American audience could understand his British accent. And we're talking about someone who was famous at the time. Donald Pleasance was a, not an unknown commodity. He Donald had, Pleasance had won Oscars. He had was won in Baftas. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, he had done, you know, The Great Escape. I mean, that's <laughs> what I mean. The, the Collector. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, he had worked with Roman Polanski and, mm -hmm. and you know, two movies. And um, I mean, this was, uh, you know, and, and it, it, he just didn't give a shit. He didn't care. He, you know, he, all that mattered to him was. So anyways, you know, the, and then they did an advertising campaign that you didn't even know it was the same movie. Yeah, that terror and the change the cut title to raw meat, right? Which is and did that yellow right. that yellow poster that was mm -hmm. just awful, and uh, I mean, and I kept saying to everybody, how could he do that? I mean, this we worked hard to make this movie, mm -hmm. and and he can do anything he wants with it, and. And I just said, you know, fuck this. I said, you know, advertising agencies don't change my commercials this much. Yeah. 
And I just said, fuck it. I, 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 I don't want to do this anymore. And I just went back to doing commercials. And I, I had no intention of, of ever doing a feature again. Then, you know, Jay and Laddie leave and Laddie becomes the president of, or the president of Fox and yeah. Jay becomes the president of First Artists. Mm-hmm. And the two of them keep talking to me and saying, oh, you got to stop doing commercials, come over here and boom, boom. So finally, I, I made a halfway move and I, 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 got, I bought a place in Los Angeles and started spending time in LA. And um, I got more interested in doing television than doing another feature because I felt more protected in television as a producer and a director and a writer. Yeah. And, um, and television was letting me do what I wanted to do. So, I was, you know, I was doing commercials in England. I didn't do commercials in the States. I didn't want to set up the commitment to do that. But I started doing a lot of television. Which leads me to a question of the difference. You say you felt protected. Is it, is it because television has, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but there's a lower risk. Like you have an episode coming out each week, right? And and it has to be quick and the decision is made and it's coming. You have to deliver the product as opposed to. Yeah, a, well, a feature, you, you're going to put, you're going to put two years of your life into a feature yeah. and then it's got one weekend to prove itself or it goes away. Where doing television especially you know i was producing series mm-hmm. um and you know and dir- hiring myself to direct as often <laughs> as i wanted um and uh you know you, at that time we were doing 22 episodes a year which doesn't happen too much now actually it's sometimes up to 26 episodes a year yeah and and you know you make it and it and it, it's it's on the air a month later and more people see it than than ever saw star wars yeah. you know right. uh and at, at that time anyhow and it, it it's um uh and it's fun and and you 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 know and if you raise the bar yourself you keep the bar high and you make stuff that you're proud of um it's fun and they i loved the volume and i loved the intensity and i loved the fact that i could do 22 episodes a year and out of those 22 episodes if i absolutely if if i liked all of them i was happy if i loved half of them i was happy Uh uh-huh and and i i made a lot of episodes of a lot of television shows that i was really proud of and made a lot of television movies that you know that 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 I was really proud to do. Um, and it wasn't the stress that you have doing a feature. Mm-hmm. And so I went eight or nine years without doing a feature film. And, um, you know, Jay and Laddie would then, you know, Jay left first artist and, and joined Laddie at, at Fox and right. they, they, they made Star Wars and, um, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, and they kept telling, oh, come to a feature, come to a feature. And there was nothing that I really wanted to do. And um, then Ron, she, I, I had met Ron Chusette. Well, mm-hmm. I met Ron, Ron Chusette came knocking on my door one day. <laughs> to, literally, I had never met him. And it was a knock on my door. And I opened the door and there's this crazy little person standing there. Was he wearing um, the ascot? Please tell me he was wearing the ascot. He, he was wearing a scarf. Yeah, a scarf. He, he had a little wool scarf tied around his neck and, and a kind of almost beret-like hat. So this, this is going to be had, will really obscure for some of our listeners right now, but I just, you know exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ronnie always wore a scarf and, yeah. and and a little and a hat of some kind, and always some brimless or little watch cap kind of mm-hmm. thing. And and he's just you know he's just Ronnie just bubbled with energy, and uh, and he says, "Hi, my name's Ron Chisette, and I'm going to be one of the biggest producers in Hollywood one day." <laughs> and and I love Deathline. And I have a script that I want you to read 
because only the person who directed Deathline could make this script. Yep. And that was dead and buried. And uh, and he said, and I'm about to do a movie, and maybe you could get involved in the movie I'm about to do. We're about to do a movie called Alien. <laughs> and um, now I see and, the connection. By the way, I, it, I didn't even doing my research. I was like, now how did he? And then it didn't even occur to me that Alien and Lad and all at the same time. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Anyways, I, I was there was a, a point at which they discussed me directing uh, Alien, but um, uh, I mean, Ron was like a hundred percent in favor of me doing Alien, although I didn't think a, Alien didn't grab me that much. I, I must say, I mean, I thought it would be a good movie, but I, but, but for me as a director, um, I, I'm not into sci-fi that much. Uh huh. And it, it there, there was, uh, I don't know, there wasn't enough of a human story for me when I read the original script. It was, you know, b before uh, David Geiler and. Uh, uh, and Gordon, Walter and Walter Hill. And um, the other producer was Gordon. Oh man, I forgot. Gordon, Gordon Carroll. Gordon Carroll. I'm and, and Gordon Carroll was Gordon Carroll was you know kind of pushing for Walter to direct. Yeah. yeah. And um, and wouldn't even talk to me about it. And uh, and I, and also Walter was a friend of mine, and I had I had no no Walter out of that position, but then. You know, they Fox released the driver and the, you know, with with uh, Ryan O'Neill, uh -huh. and and the driver just tanked. Yeah, and and uh, there was no way that 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 Walter was going to end up doing Alien after, and then they just moved, and then r the idea of Ridley came in, and and boom, boom, right. and. The rest is history. and and nobody could have done that film better than ridley so it's it was uh it was perfect that's so, interesting thought right there so you could have directed alien you you clearly didn't push to it sir but you you're looking back saying ridley was the best choice you would not have been the best choice yeah i i think so right i mean um you know, whereas I was the best choice for Dead and Buried. <laughs> agreed, agreed, agreed. And, and Ridley couldn't have done Dead and Buried as good as. <laughs> I absolutely, but I find that fascinating because you know you 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 have to have a, at least an emotional attachment to the material, or at least an understanding. Can you explain that? Of what is it? An emotion inside? Is it? Is it? I understand. I know where this world is. I can see it my mind's eye for lack of a better phrase how how do you pick it how do you know that that's it can you ex describe the feeling of aliens not for me even though this is going to be huge but dead and buried is for me no one can do dead and buried like i can do well you see my question it's, I know it's it, it just you know it's, it's how it emotionally grabs you so it's an emotion emotion yeah yeah it, it is it's, it's it's all about them i mean i i make movies from here i don't right. make them from here okay i mean it, it starts here it goes through here for filtering and then it sends it back to here and that and from and from here it goes to my hands and, and i make the movie um you know i also turned down omen uh -huh. the, the omen and which was probably a really major mistake on my part but <laughs> but but you know i turned it down mace newfeld came to me with the script and um uh and wanted me wanted me to take it to to Jay and Laddie, because he knew they were looking for a picture for me to do, and um, uh, and I I just said the script needs a total rewrite. I mean it just it just doesn't grab me, and so anyways uh, you know I said I'm not interested, and then they took it to Dick Donner, mm -hmm. and. And <laughs> and Dick and Dick took it to Fox for them, and um, and but Dick said the script sucks; it needs a total rewrite. Rewrite, which I wasn't. I, I you know I was what twenty seven years old or something, and had done one movie and and uh, and a lot of television. 
And I didn't know the game. I didn't know that you could lie to the producers and take it to the studio and tell the studio what you really thought, but you had told the producers something else. And had I known that, I probably would have ended up doing The Omen because I would have taken it to Jay and Laddie and said, the script sucks, but it's a really good idea. And, um, you know, I mean, I liked the underlying thing of The Omen, but I hated the script. The script was awful. And the the first script. And um, later it got good. But, you know, but again, Dick did a great job. Well, um, yeah, he's excellent, but I'm curious well, how yours would have been different. Have you thought about it before how you would have changed and what you would have changed? No, that would have been futile. Yeah, <laughs> and but... made, it made me more depressed because I, Omen, I should have directed. Okay. I, I mean, I, that was a big mistake on my part. And I, I you know, I could go into it deeper because I, I talked to young filmmakers all the actually. Uh, w- without mentioning any names, I I do a, a a Zoom. I'm part of a Zoom meeting that happens every Thursday night, and um, most of the people on the Zoom calls are are household names within the world of horror. I'm and assuming it, it's, one of it's Del like, Toro. Is what Del Toro? I'm assuming. No, no, Guillermo's not part of it oh, um, because he is a fan. Yeah, he is a fan. He lavishes praise on you, sir. Well, thank you. I, I um, and I appreciate it. <laughs> but they're most not. Uh, these are mostly young. Um, I, I'm the grandpa on this on this Zoom call. Would one um, of them be Eli? No, I'm the, I'm the, actually, I, I'm not allowed to say who yeah. it, it is. It is basically a secret society. Um, and, uh, uh, and we talk about all kinds of things and we bring in a lot of young filmmakers um, to, to talk to. And I, there was somebody who, a young filmmaker who had been given a script recently and just said, God, I, I I see a movie in this and I really want to do it, but the script is so awful and the the writer is one of the one of the producers and I don't know how to deal with it and I, but I really want to make this movie, but I gotta tell them that I have to do a page one rewrite on it. Yeah. And 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 I told the omen story. Yeah. Um and, and I said, you know what? Lie to the producers. And then when they get and when you, when you get the deal with the studio, then tell the studio how you really feel, and um, and 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 get, gain allies and convince them that that what you want to do is the right way to do it, and uh, and so you know so I gave him that advice. And got to um, keep me posted if it works. You don't even need to tell me names later, but okay. All now right. I'm I now will. I'm just jealous thinking of all the people I could interview in a room. But that's beside the point. We will, <laughs> we'll keep going since you're not going to give me access to who all that is. But uh, well, you know what? I actually somebody who was it? I was telling somebody about this thing, but not you know, of course, not mentioned. We, we're not. We we basically signed a blood oath that we won't mention. It anything that we talk about you know in in detail and and do do so i know names and but anyway somebody who was oh i know it was you know i'm i'm very good friends uh with with andrea uh, sabacetti you know who's the uh-huh. executive editor of um of of room org uh-huh. and um I was telling Andrea about this. She was interviewing me about something and I told her about what we do. And and she said, oh, I would love to come one night. Do you think they'd let me, you know, <laughs> sign in one night? And I, I brought it up 
to everybody on the, the following Thursday and everybody said, no, no journalists, <laughs> no journalists. You know, calling me that is the kiss of death of someone who's failed on many, many short films and been successful. <laughs> most of his life. As I always tell people, oh man, I had to get a real gig because I failed at the other one, but this is. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't no, mean to. No, no, no. But it was more of just the, our conversational top as we do these things of letting you know this is kind of here's the nice thing you're going to spend your Saturday morning doing this. Yep. <laughs> so, I, what other person? So there's two or three characters in your life that I have to ask about that I find fascinating that I'll never get the chance to meet that I have uh, just a litany of stories about one of them, not so much with Donald. I didn't have a lot of stories about Donald, but the other one was Dan O'Bannon and I'll never get to meet Dan O'Bannon. He, no. uh, but you know, Dan and I almost had a passing relationship. Um, I, you know, I, I met I met Dan a few times while they were doing Alien and uh, and, and talked to him about the dead and buried for the people listening. Right, and and um, but Dan was not around when we were doing Dead and Buried. Really, uh, I, I had most of my encounters with Dan were prior to Dead and Buried. Um, Dan was just off into other things at that at that point, um, and he was a little miffed at me actually about one of the thing. What the, the biggest change that I made in Dead and Buried was I, I eliminated all the mumbo jumbo. Mm -hmm. There was all kinds of stuff about, you know, how Dobbs did it and, mm -hmm. and you know, and, and uh, techie speed. kind of mystical, mystical kind of stuff and voodoo was, and- you Was know. it kind of Lovecraftian? Cause he was- Yes, it was. He was, he was such a fan of Lovecraft, you know, and it came- It was, it was very Lovecraftian and, and just filled with, and I'm I'm much more into people and <laughs> and than mysticism, yeah. Which uh, mysticism doesn't do it for me. I, I I really love relationships between human beings mm -hmm. and 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 motivation based on humanity. And um, and so I I had convinced Ron. That we should lose all the mumbo jumbo, yeah, and and concentrate. There's only one vestige of the mumbo jumbo that's still in the movie, and Ron just begged me and said, "No, please, let's just do that one thing." And that was, you know, when they reconstruct the the hitchhiker. Yeah. Um. Janet, you know, Melody Anderson, the, mm -hmm. steps out of the shadows and. That's me. Yeah, my wife, my my wife's name is Janet. She heard me say Janet. She said, "That's you me." Janet. <laughs> I married Janet. Yeah. That's funny. Um, and uh, you know, her her favorite line from any of my movies actually is when Dobbs says, "Janet, my masterpiece." <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. But I mean, I met Janet my Janet years after I did that and buried, but, um, uh, but anyways, I mean, it, 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 oh yeah. So when, when the hitchhiker is lying there and, and Janet steps out of the shadow and then steps back and then she becomes alive. Yeah. Um, Ronnie just loved that scene. And I, I, so I said, well, I'll, I'll, ease it in and just it, it, it'll come in and it'll go away and you'll get that feeling um and ronnie thought it was important to to involve janet mm -hmm. in in dobbs's world uh other than us just talking about it so anyways i, I went along with that but all the rest of the mumbo jumbo was gone and 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 put into that one speech that 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 Dobbs does at the end where he says call it voodoo call it black magic yeah but you know it's my art and um and that's as much as we uh, we give to that and um 
uh, and Dan was upset about that. He, he, he was not happy that we, t- he, he loved all that Lovecrafty and mysticism. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it would come out later and, and it's not like it stopped there. It come out later in his work more and more. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, he just kind of, and he was off doing something else and he, he never showed up in Mendocino. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he never came up at all while we were shooting. And um, so my relationship, I, I don't really have any Dan O'Bannon stories. But if you want, if, you, if who else are you asking about? Dan O'Bannon? Uh, I hope, no, no, let's move on to the next person that you wanted to talk about. Oh, well, we were going to get to, well, it was more of a, someone whose last name was Hauser. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wings! I'll talk about wings. But before we go off into wings, let's talk about Stan Winston. Please, you talk about Stan Winston all you want because I actually don't have a Stan Winston question. So please, please talk about him and talk about the the effects. Stan Winston, actually, as as you probably know, there's a a new 4K uh, Ultra HD Blu-ray of dead and buried that's uh-huh. about to come out from blue underground i actually missed um, that if it makes you i'm sorry i haven't actually seen it yet so now you've given me you're going to cost me more money hopefully some of it's going to your pocket yeah well it, it's unbelievable the yeah. the new this it's a three disc set and it, it's absolutely incredible and the extras on it are amazing including like i think it's a 28 minute interview with with Stan that was done by uh, David Gregory uh-huh. like several years ago. I, well, it had to be several years. I think it was like, God, it's almost, I think it was done 18, 16 or 18 years ago. Yeah. Um, before, before Stan got sick and it was meant to be for something and they never, they never put it together and they never used it before. So it's now on this. Uh, it's awesome. This 4K uh, disc, and it is absolutely fantastic. With 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 Stan talking about you know, Dead and Buried being one of his first major pictures that he uh-huh. did, and it was before he had his company, and he had to do all the work himself, and and how he and I worked together. And, uh, you know, like going back into the script and figuring out the best way to, um, to do each scene. And it, it's an absolutely fantastic interview and about how we argued. Well, we argued about one thing. We, we had one major, major what was it? argument. Well, it's funny because the way I remembered it is not the way Stan told the story, but it was close. Well, um, we rearrange it, the furniture in our minds, don't we? In our memories, yeah. we rearrange them. It the, the screaming head, yeah. You know the burned head, yeah. And um, and Stan actually admitted uh, on this thing that that it, it was in the script that the head was upside down, and and uh, we had always talked about the head being upside down. But he felt that the head would be more expressive if it was right side up. And he, and and when we actually set it up on the on, on the location, and it was you know the the van was upside down, the burning van was upside down. Um, he he went at me and said, "Why don't you turn it and make it right side up for the scream?" Mm-hmm. And I said, Stan, I would, I would have to completely re, you know, <laughs> how are we going to turn it over on camera and boom, boom, boom. And um, anyways, we got into a big argument about it. And he said, well, it's going to look like shit upside down. I, you, do you know how hard I worked on this? And blah, 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 bump. And, and so anyways, in this interview, one of the things he says is he says, I was really being an asshole. And and he says, he said, I wouldn't have blamed Gary if he never would have wanted to work with me again because I was acting like an old lady. <laughs> and and he said, you know what? He said, I've looked at it. And he said, yeah, I, I've looked at it upside down, right side up. And you know what? It does work just as well upside down as it would have worked right side up. But it's unnerving and, upside down, right? I mean, it's it's just more 
to me, it's unnerving to see it upside. You, you, you do what I mean? Well, you don't expect them to be alive upside down, right That's side up. I, I think it wouldn't have been as much of a surprise. That's what it's, it's just kind of, it's a nerving it, it, to watch it that way. In, in this, in the same way, the needle in the eye, we, we had shot it several different ways, including one where it was a singular shot of her, you know, from her face and, and the needle going right into the eye. Um, and it didn't work. It worked better that we started to see her hand come down and cut to the needle going into the eye. Mm -hmm. It became much more of a shock. It, it was too deliberate as a single motion. And Stan argued with me about that too, uh, but not, I mean, not as adamantly because he agreed in the end that, that the way that it was shot, he said, you know, it would have shown off, had, a, had, a, had we seen the arc of her hand taking it into the eye, it would have shown off his work better but as far as filmically and emotionally, it worked better the way that, that, that we actually put it together. But anyways, he, he and I had so much fun on that, on that film. And, and I just love Stan Winston. And when, when in, I guess it was 2001 or 2002 when, when I was honored at, and, and Deathline was honored at the New York Film Festival and the scary movie section that was done by the, uh, Lincoln Center Film Society. Um, Stan actually came. He showed up there, and it was uh, it was really great. Um, I had no idea at the time that he was as sick as he was, mm -hmm. and he he didn't tell anybody. And I saw him in in Los Angeles a few times after that, and he never uh, he never intimated, and you know. One of the worst things about being in show business is hearing about your friends dying on the radio. Oh, yeah, I can imagine because it just gets out so quick and you don't have the time for, for example, you know, someone passes and you're a friend, then someone calls you and it's usually another friend or another acquaintance or a family member. And then you'll hear about it, especially now on the Internet. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just awful. I mean, I can I can name. When, you know, John Alcott. Uh, who had been a friend of mine for years and years. And, uh, you know, when he was working with Stanley yeah. and Kubrick. Um, and, uh, you know, and John had done Vice Squad for me. And then, uh -huh. uh, you know, then when I was offered Wanted Dead or Alive, <clears throat> I called Johnny and said, you want to come back and do another movie with me in, in L.A.? And he said, absolutely. And he was going to do Wanted. Mm -hmm. And um, Sue, his wife, called me and said, Gary, can you not use Johnny for Wanted Dead or Alive? She said, he doesn't know I'm making this call, but he's not feeling well. And he's not doing well. And he's been overworking. You know, he just did Greystoke and, mm -hmm. and he's exhausted. And I just don't want him flying to Los Angeles and doing an all night picture again with you. Yeah. And, um, uh, and I said, you know, sure, Sue, I'll, I'll find somebody else to do the movie. She, Cause she's, she was really worried about him. So anyways, that's when I, when I met Alex Napomnishi and mm -hmm. who became my new favorite cinematographer. Yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, we were in the second week of shooting Wanted Dead or Alive. And somebody comes walking onto the set and saying, hey, did you hear John Alcott just died? That's how I heard that my friend John Alcott died. Wow, By somebody shouting, hey, did you hear John Alcott died? And uh, doo doo. So... Um, Sue was right. They asked me not to use him on the picture because he wasn't well, and he had a heart attack at quite a young age, and and died. It, it was just it was a hard time for me, and it, it just and it was the same with Stan. I just you know, I heard on the radio Stan Winston, special effects genius, passed away this afternoon from cancer, and do do, and it was Jack Albertson as well. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, I had I had dinner with Jack the night before he died, and yeah. um, we had done the, his ADR that afternoon, and we we all knew that he was dying. I mean, there was no secret. Everybody, you know, we were taking a chance using him on the movie in the first place, and because um, uh, it was um, he was sick. He he had cancer. He was dying. We yeah. knew that. We had to take care of him. We had a nurse and stuff for him while he was doing the movie. And do uh, do, but um, it was still hard out. So we had we did ADR in the afternoon, and then he and his wife and I went out to dinner that night with some other people and um, uh, said good night and boom and. I, I go home and I wake up in the morning and my clock radio wakes me up in the morning. And the first thing I hear is actor Jack Albertson was rushed to the hospital early this morning to Cedar sinai and where he passed away. And um, boom, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was just basically in shock. Gary, um, do you think a lot of people keep it secret just because of the way the business is? Do you think Stan kept it secret, not necessarily because he didn't want to tell anybody, but just because of not showing weakness? Or I'm just curious if you're inside into that. Because uh, you knew him better. Of course, I never met him, but you he know. was a very private person. Okay. Stan. I mean, he, his, his, Stan was. You know, one hundred percent a real human being who who you know uh, who didn't hide much. I mean, mm -hmm. his, his feelings were out there. He was very honest with people, but he was very private as far as his own life went. And um, you know, I mean, I, I've known so many people, uh, and but you know, I didn't know anything about Stan Zalman King. Um, I knew about Zalman's cancer from the day that it was diagnosed. I mean, Zalman was, you know, one of my best friends. And, um, but Zalman just had me sworn to secrecy and everyone because he just wanted to keep working. Yeah. And he did. He worked straight up to the day that he died. Boy, they, they well, uh, he worked straight up until the time that he was too sick to work. Zalman, I didn't hear about on the radio. <laughs> I was there. Uh, I mean, he really, Zalman was one of my best friends yeah. ever. And um, so I, I was by his bedside as long as I could. I, I was already living in Chicago at that time. And um, so I was, I would just go back and forth. And then I stayed out there for an extended time to be with, with, with him and Pat, his wife, who passed away last year. Uh, anyways i know i didn't mean to get down the, <laughs> didn't mean to go down the road but i yeah. you know you, you've had such a, a long career and you've met so many influential producers directors like zalman produced and directed right yeah yeah all right boneheads that was our first part part one i know it was a little somber at the end but i, I think it was important to leave it in the next episode we pick right up with vice squad and go on from there so tune in for next week for our part two with gary sherman Uh-huh. <laughs>